Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 165. My guest today is Boaz Mizrahi, co-founder of Tactile Mobility, an autonomous vehicle software platform we'll learn more about in the interview. He is a veteran technologist and entrepreneur, holding over three decades of experience in signal processing, algorithm research, and system design in the automotive and networking industries. He's also the co-founder and director of engineering at Charlotte's Web Networks, a developer of high-speed networking equipment. Let's learn how cars can feel the road as we get into the interview with Boaz Mizrahi. Boaz, welcome to Artificial Intelligence and You. Thank you for having me. And you're calling in all the way from Israel, where you are one of the founders of Tactile Mobility. Is that correct? That's right. Founded back in the end of 2011 in Israel and working uh, since then on uh, technology for uh, the automotive. And my humble opinion of breakthrough technology, which takes the AI, but not just AI, directly into the heart of the vehicle, into the issue, the engine control unit, which is something that was never done before. And the name and the description suggests that we're getting information about a modality that is not normally part of what we think of as inputs for driving, feelings, and that we're very focused on what we can see in driving, very little focused on what we can hear. That might be another interesting topic. But when I think about how I drive, the input from how the road feels to me through the the car's vibration, through the steering wheel, these are important factors to me that are left out of the way that autonomous vehicles have been figuring out what to do. And so is tactile mobility using that information in some way? That's right, that's right. And I think if you try to, to figure out what's really missing in the current sensors of uh, those uh, smart vehicles, autonomous vehicles, I think the best example would be to try to imagine yourself drive a car remotely. Okay, so just sit like here in your office with the screens in front of you and steering wheel and pedals, and you control a real car in real scenarios, driving somewhere in the world, okay? Mm-hmm. And you can see remotely. So everything is related to your office, like the video, whatever you have there, and then like zero delay, very secure, the perfect way. Okay, like, like a video game, but it's not a game. Now, right. if you think about it, would you do that? Would you dare to do that? So maybe you will, maybe you will not. But if you think that you need to drive fast, you need to drive with cars around you, we need to drive in a severe weather conditions or even just a slight severe weather conditions, and add to that that your children or spouse is sitting on the back seat. You will not do that. Ever, never. Okay? And why? You're a good driver. You're an experienced driver. And if you got to think about why you will not do it, 
because you don't feel the car. You don't feel the environment. You need to feel it. You are too detached from it. Okay? So when we come to think about well, what do I feel? Well, what's the missing sense? Well, what do I feel when I sit in the car? Okay? And this is what tactile mobility is all about. So what we do is that we collect all those signals that already exist in the vehicle. Okay? We collect those steering requests from the driver. We collect the wheel speed, the IMU outputs like accelerations, yaw rate, etc. the torque calculation on the engine or the output of the engine or the wheels. So we collect all those chassis signals and we are generating insights. And the first target was to identify what do we really want to represent out of that. Okay, what do we want to, to have? So at the end of the day, we understood that we are working on sensors. We call virtual sensors because it's the software that's generating uh, insights. And this virtual sensor is sensing something which we need to represent in some way, okay? In the way that not a driver will use it, but rather the other customer functions in the vehicle will use it. Productive, for example, adaptive cruise control, okay? If you have an adaptive cruise control, then one of the commands that normally today is commanded by the driver is uh, selecting for the distance to keep from the vehicle in front of you. Is it one second, two, three seconds, okay? And you will do that according to uh, grip, okay? For example, if it's bad weather, it will keep a larger distance. Now, if we want to, to provide this information instead of the driver, directly to feed it to the ACC as a precondition of that, we need to do that in a way that the certainty of the information or the uncertainty of the information and the representation of the output will be in a way digestible to that system so we can do something with that and can decide for the disk. So for this example, I can say that one of the important sensors, virtual sensors we have developed was grip indication, available grip or available friction, which is a number, friction, okay, coefficient that the vehicle experience every second while you drive and can change from a second to a second. It has to do with your situation of the road, of course, and the slipperiness of the road, but also my tires, suspension, whatever I have in the chassis that helps me grip, okay? So this indication is generated like every second and provided back systems of the vehicle, which takes it in the turn and convert it into actionable items that they do. For example, deciding to have a maximum safe speed or deciding what the distance to keep from the car in front of you. So taking the existing sensors in the vehicle, and by the way, those sensors existed for the past 20 years, okay, like two decades, it's there, like wheel speed, okay, but out of that, extract this uh, very important information. This is the unique selling point of that mobile. So let me see if I can make this more real. When I'm thinking about the example you gave of driving a remote-controlled vehicle, certainly the ones where you're looking at the car racing around a track in front of you, I'm hopeless at those because you have to adjust your coordinate system according to where the car is, and I haven't learned that one. But even in a game like Buggy Racer, I'm bad at those too, even though I've got the point of view of the car because I'm not getting the input of lateral acceleration, for instance. And that goes into helping me as a driver know 
how fast I'm moving and folds into my overall proprioception of how I control the car. But that isn't necessarily something that an autonomous control system would need when it's got perfect data from visual systems about exactly where it is and knows where it wants to go. The examples that you gave then about the grip suggest that you could address situations like skidding. And so is that one of the more real examples of where the system comes into play, or is there a better one? Exactly, definitely. If you see today about these, uh, you know, starting points of the autonomous systems, we're talking about level three vehicles, or, uh, you know, uh, some functionality of level three. So most of these guys are working only until, let's say, 60 kph, maybe 70 kph. They do not activate the system above that. And I'm not talking about a computer with wheels like Tesla. I'm talking about cars that think like cars, KOEM that think like car makers. And why is that? Because even at 60 or 70 kph, there might be situations that you cannot see them with visual sensors. Okay? So if you don't feel them, you don't know how to handle the car. And car handling, this is one of the more important tasks of those autonomous functions. Yeah? If you want to know what's the maximal, what's your available grip, what is the maximal longitudinal deceleration rate you can make, like braking before the car is in front of you, or if you want to take over, okay? So what's the, the lateral excitations that I can do now without flying off the road? Now, for example, if you see rain, we all know as drivers that if your tires are good, if the surface is uh, nicely drained or, you know, the vehicle texture of the asphalt is in the best condition, you can drive at 150 kph there and nothing will happen to you with heavy rain. However, if your tires are worn out completely and the road is very smooth, even at 60 or 70 kph, you can experience aqua planning and just fly out of the road. Now, a camera cannot differentiate between the two. Now, since the risk of aquaplaning can happen at 60 kph, even in with about 1% of the vehicles, okay, nobody will take a chance. So this autonomous function, when it sees the rain, okay, or experience the rain condition, it will stop any accelerating uh, beyond uh, this point. So if you want to drive at 60, 70, and 120 kph, you must have the knowledge of the grip at each point of the time. Okay, one of the major OEMs, when they approached us years ago, okay, with a challenge. So they say, imagine yourself, you know, a highly autonomous vehicle driving on a highway and the driver asleep, okay, 200 the kph. In order for that to make it real, we need to know the grip 300 meters in front of the vehicle. Otherwise, there will be always dangerous situations where the car will smash. And in order to avoid that, somebody needs to give this information and it cannot be a visual sensor. So a camera with your eyes, you cannot see black eyes. Until you try to brake or try to handle the car, you will not feel it. And this is the say, the most dangerous situation. And there are also other situations. For example, you know, experienced drivers, they can feel the properties of the tires. Do you have a worn-out tires? Are your tires are well equipped for this kind of weather situation? Is it winter tire, summer tire? Is it too rigid? Is it a stiff tire, soft tire? So they know how to handle the vehicle. 
Now, even a normal driver, okay, experienced one, you know that driving after 20 years of normal driving to the work at home, he feels it, but he or she, that they don't, you know, translate it into something that they can express, okay? But, but they think something is different with the car, with the handling of the car, so they will drive more carefully. Now, if you relay on your eyes only, you will not feel it. That's the situation. So what Stockton Mobility is doing is learning all this information, you know, identifying the changes, the anomalies there, and accessing it to the vehicle, to the rest of those uh, customer factors in the vehicle. And does this require additional hardware, or can you do it from hooking up to the ABS and variable traction? So one of the smart guys uh, told me when I started my adventure here is that if you will provide us in hardware to the OEM I'm working with, it will not happen in your life, okay? So that's what we did. So it's pure software, and not that just it's software, it's a software that can run on very lean ECU, lean resources ECU. Talk about memory, runtime memory and flash memory, but also runtime, okay? So... For example, you know, everybody's talking about running very sophisticated neural networks on NVIDIA high-end uh, chips, but can you do that in uh, Arduino? Can you do that in microcontroller of in uh, 70 kilobytes? So imagine yourself running in 70 kilobytes a neural network that is doing something meaningful, okay? And the other challenge here is to do that with certainty level that is acceptable in this area, which is very, very high. Okay, that's the most challenging uh, point here. So we take the existing sensors in the vehicle, we dig into them, we are running our magic there with the physical modeling and signal processing, but also some, after the modeling, we are doing those in neural uh, networks, embedded computing in the ECU, and the outcomes of those estimations are then going through a very sophisticated filter that suggesting that maybe this is something that we don't know, we're not sure of, so we drop it, okay? So at the end of the day, this entire pipeline with very lean resources should yield good enough estimations that can be used in the vehicle. So that's the challenge here. And is that neural network trained offline in advance on much bigger hardware? If so, what does that training phase look like? Right, right. So the if you think about uh, AI in general or what we do, there is a search space, okay, that you need to search and come to your conclusion there. And if on the train side, you see all the potential situations of the entire span of your world, then you can train it for everything. But unfortunately, this field of you know, designing a software for vehicles, for dynamic handling, you don't always see all those situations. So the system should be so wise that it can compensate for situations that it never experienced during the training offline before. Okay? So to overcome that, and I'll give you just one example, okay? So even if I have a very good data to train my system on, but most of the data comes from uh, nice test vehicles, right? That you have nice uh, condition tires, okay? But what will happen, the same car in very uh, hot situation in the desert, I don't know, in the Sahara Desert or wherever, 
and I have a Chinese worn out tires, what's then? And maybe I have some uh, sand stuck in my rim, so and my car is vibrating or whatever. Will my algorithm work there? So in order to do that, you need a lot of data, okay? A real world data, not just artificial data, a simulated data or, you know, test class data. And you also need to be able to calibrate it online in the vehicle edge computing. And I mean online, meaning that if I detect a new tire that was mounted, okay, if we detect that the parameters of the tires that we measure are substantially changed, then we identify it as a tire change. And at this exact point, we are recalibrating our system because we need to remodel our world with the new tires that we have mounted. Why? Because we, tactile, we don't see the world, we feel the world. And we feel it through your tires, okay? So if my glasses, okay, are different now, if my filters are different now, then I need to modify the model that I had before, the nominal model, the new uh, model that uh, comes. So this is just one example. And similarly, you need to do that with the rest of the chassis components that may be degrading or aging or changing in place along the time. So part of the software, the data software is done edge, okay, as your car is driving out for production and along the time in parallel to what we do, and it is uh, generating what we call my vehicle DNA. Okay, so the vehicle DNA is like the digital twin. You can think of that like the model describing my car. Part of that has to do with the neural networks or coefficients or stuff like this, look at tables, etc. And the, this, my vehicle DNA is the changing model that keeps changing all the time with my chassis, yeah, and mostly it's the chassis. Okay? So this is one part of how we handle those changing uh, conditions. And the other part, of course, is to collect as much data as we can. And doing that by collecting the uh, data, pieces of data, from real-world cars driving commercially around, and they're, of course, following the regulations of GDPR, in order to make sure that we are collecting real-world experience and keep maturing our software again and again. Mm. And you've mentioned cars, but is this also applicable to larger vehicles where things like wind shear might be a factor? Right. So... Actually, we've started uh, with the trucks, with heavy, long old trucks. That's how the company started, because uh, back then the fuel cost was huge. Um, so we needed to uh, provide the solutions for that. So the My Vehicle DNA with trucks managed to model all the losses, okay? Like a wind truck, for example, rolling resistance and other inefficiencies there. Mainly for fleet owners, you know, if you want to uh, replace your, your truck, if you want to have a spoiler, you know, to reduce the wind drag or something like this. So, yes, I mean, we can do that. When the company uh, evolved and we wanted to be in as many vehicles as possible, so uh, the scaling up tend to be with the private vehicles and not with the, you know, the heavy fleets. You have around mm. the 70 million passenger cars going out of production yearly. So our mission, as we see that, is to be in every vehicle we can inside the ECU. 
this is why we have very little resources needed because, you know, enables us to be in the same vanilla vehicles today and then collect this information on the cloud. So on the cloud side, what we are collecting, we are collecting only the insights, not the raw data, of course. So only the outcomes, those virtual sensor outputs regarding the vehicle health, okay, like tires, and regarding the surface, okay, we call that surface DNA and vehicle DNA. So we collect both types of information, transmit it to the cloud from those commercial fleets, and then generating real-time maps on the cloud side. So this is like taking this data world, okay, and insights of those data up to the cloud. So it's like, think of that like the Google of the wheels. Okay, so if Google is located in your smartphone, attached to your car, you know, in most of the cars today, if you are attached inside the DEC or collecting information from the tires, then you have much better indication about what's happening to the vehicle, to the chassis, and to the service. How does the deployment of this system look like? Is it designed to be a level four or five solution or a driver assist? Is it something that's baked in to cars at the manufacturing stage by the vendor or is it a software upload later? Is it designed to be standalone or does it integrate with some other manufacturers or some other autonomy vendors solution that includes visual data? Right. So as I mentioned, the software is used today in today's vehicle, in ADAS, Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, level two, as we call that. So not even level three. In level three, it's a must. You must, as I mentioned, you must need to know the grip and you need to know tire parameters and other stuff like this. If you want to replace the driver. But for ADAS, okay, the example I gave you with the adaptive cruise control, it's a level two example setting the distance with the car in front of you. So it's a level two software. Then we're talking about software that is integrated in the production line. So we are joining forces with the OEM during the pre-production, the pre-development. And it's like a couple of years before the start of production. We are working with the other software designers of the ACU because the ACU, you know, hosting several customer functions of the vehicle that depends on which type of PC you are located in. And then we are integrating our software with the other pieces of software inside the same ECU and calibrating and testing those cars for a year or two before the production. Then once the car rolls out of the production line, it already has inside our software embedded in the ECU, functioning there, and already starting generating insights and sending them to the cloud through the uh, modem of the connected people. I'm curious about something. Israel, not a very large country, but one of the more famous autonomy manufacturers, Mobileye, is also located there. Is Israel some kind of center of excellence for research and development in autonomous vehicle? It's a good question. We don't have history of car manufacturing in Israel. Actually, I think there was a, a one uh, trial like 40, 50 years ago, and it wasn't a great uh, achievement. So it's not a car manufacturing country. However, I think what Israel is the best with in the technology is asking questions. We ask questions always. If you ask me a question, I will reply with a question. And the questions we ask here is, what do we do with the data? So we have data. 
In the mobile example, it's the visual data that you have in front of you. So what can I do with that? What do I see there? How do I see? We are talking about the tactile information. So we look at the same signals that the car manufacturers and IBLT ones are looking at. Those are the same exact sensors, like wheel speed, dots, IMU, etc. But we ask ourselves, like it's the common in, in our country, to so ask questions. What do we see in those signals? Why can't other guys see that same things there as well? And we bring a new view into the same world. So we think differently. Now, sometimes it works, sometimes it works less. But when it works, it gives an excellent breakthrough in the industry. And the mobile is a very good example for that. And we have also a good industry, you know, uh, for cyber security for vehicles and for others. So if you look about a perception, okay, looking into data, it's perception, okay, like building the information out of that. This is something that we are uh, good at because we ask questions always about what we see around us. Where do you see this going in the next few years? What sort of breakthroughs, what sort of timeline? As far as you can look into a crystal ball, where do you see it going and where do you want it to go? Industry-wise or technology-wise? In autonomous vehicle development, I'm particularly interested in when we will get consumer level, autonomy level four. I think it will not be soon and definitely not with the large scale deployment. I think that the major challenge as we see it from our view, and uh, we handle the same exact uh, challenges, is that, and then it goes back to the question you asked before, can we train the system to handle everything like a human being can do? And my answer is no, we cannot. Why? Mainly because we don't have all this data to be trained for. Okay, so you as a driver, when you drive, anywhere you drive, you have more data, you process more data than what we process in our computers here. Okay, we would even millions and tens of millions of already recorded kilometers. And this is what makes this industry challenging. So to be able to rely on the computer, okay, to let it drive for you, to let it decide for you. And uh, this challenge, when you take into the real world, the real world scenario, it will always fail. Or definitely the next few years, it will fail. So at the end of the day, we can find those uh, level four products in confined areas, maybe in ports, maybe, you know, in uh, some uh, tracks where they only drive for themselves. So they be very confined. You will find it there. But I don't think that I will, uh, you know, go to my uh, garage and there will be a car waiting for me there and take me with my neighbor to, I don't know, we will not uh, do that, I think, at least in the next 20 years. I think I agree with your assessment, but I'm not sure I agree with the reasoning. We train systems right now on huge amounts of data, like on language. We feed large language models, much more language than any human ever encounters in their lifetime. And they learn how to do things that humans can't. We train computers on lots of data so that they can recognize faces better than humans. And while we as drivers input a huge amount of data from our senses, the training systems and simulations put computers in, say, Tesla cars and Waymo and all the others through billions of miles of 
I think it's billions, at least millions of miles of training far more again than a human gets. So there's something different. It's not about the amount of data. It doesn't seem to be about the amount of situations that they have gone through, but it seems to be about how smart they are at dealing with that and generalizing from that. What do you think? I think you are totally right. If I take the two examples you gave, like language, how much uh, in data of language do we have on our uh, internet, on our computers, you know, chat uh, GPT, etc. So uh, what's the base for training? In compare, what's the base of training that you have for mobile? You need to collect tons of data, especially if it's uh, visual data, okay? It's tons of bandwidth to collect to the cloud, and it's not there yet. So I think today that mobilize the company that collects most of the visual data from vehicles, right? And even they, with the REM that they announced and the other stuff they have, I don't think they have enough data to train. And the other thing is that you need to be smart, not just train, like ChatGPT. So whatever happens in the fast, it's, it's great, okay? Like modeling, whatever. But in order, you know, you as a human being, when you will encounter a situation that you never saw it before, you will handle better than a computer. And I'm not sure that we know why. Because if we knew why, we could model it and then you train for that. But, but that's the issue. So especially with driving situations, and especially, you know, in, in situations of uh, different societies, different civilizations, different way of driving around the world, interpretations of gestures of people of whatever, you will do better, even if you don't know the place and you never drove there before, you'll do much better than a computer there that will you train it with millions of kilometers. By the way, Packer Mobility has also like maybe 50 millions of kilometers already recorded with data, real data, and then it's not enough for us because there will always be situations that we never encountered and those models will not cover it. So the only thing you can do is at least identify that this is a situation that you've never encountered before, so drop the estimation, right? And don't use it. But even that, it's very difficult. So this is why I think, unlike uh, handling text, handling driving autonomously will take a lot, a lot of time. Well, thank you. Our listeners are spread out over quite a few countries, and which of them would encounter tactile mobility products, and how would they know that that was in a car that they were driving? So it's a good question. We are looking at what we do as the software, embedding the software we call the tactile inside or smart sensing. So what the customer is experiencing is a car that knows better about the environment and reacts better and assists the driver to do that. So a car with tactile inside for the driver will feel smarter. The example I gave you with the adaptive cost control preconditioning, instead that you will identify you are in a bad situation, then the car will do that for you. Okay? So that's what we do. So instead of preconditioning the car yourself for the car situations, we will do that for you. So this is how you will experience that. And on the cloud side, when those maps will be populated enough refreshed enough in order to be used in real time, when we'll have enough, you know, millions of vehicles around the world driving and transmitting, then you as a driver will know exactly uh, what you will experience in the next mile, OK? 
okay, what's the horizon in front of you, and the car will be preconditioned according to that rather than the last mile that you have experienced. So this is how a driver will feel it. We are now in the stages of integrating our software into several target ECUs within OEMs and tier ones. And hopefully in the next coming years, you will hear more about us. I saw you had a deal with Porsche. So does it mean there will be a Porsche where you start the engine and it pops up on the screen, the powered by tactile mobility? So yes, Porsche are one of our important investors in the company. We are working with Porsche for quite some time. And I, hopefully uh, we would have our system embedded there. And I'm not sure you will see that in the infotainment, you know, powered by tactile, but you will uh, definitely feel uh, the car uh, smarter. So that's our goal. But not just with Porsche cars, we are working with other companies. One of our uh, investors is uh, Nextil, that uh, manufactures uh, steering wheels for vehicles, one of the major key ones in this area. And we are embedded in their ECU, in the EPS, electric power steering ECU. So any car that we have an exterior system inside will actually have tactile inside eventually. Okay, that's what we are aiming for. And hopefully we can announce a few OEMs that already have it. Once it's there, then we have, again, millions of vehicles roaming and uh, collecting uh, those information and turning themselves uh, smarter. Thank you. Well, one of the larger statistics for deaths and injuries in the world is due to preventable automobile accidents. And so I thank you for doing this work to lower that number. Do you have any kind of goals in terms of those metrics that you're aiming for, like number of accidents prevented? So that's a good question. We are a sensing company. The sensors that we are providing, breakthrough sensors, enables the vehicles, the OEMs, the manufacturers to provide safer systems. So hopefully, as we see that, when those vehicles will be smarter, accidents due to mishandling of the vehicles in compared to your potential, a grip potential or handling potential because of your worn tire or because of worn out asphalt or black ice or whatever, those situations will be dramatically reduced. And these are one of the, unfortunately, the causes for such a father accidents. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners about the company or your personal motivations for what you want to see the future of driving come out to be? Right, right. So I think that what the tactile brings to this industry, to the market, is a new way of perception, is looking into the data in a missing a sensing way so far. And hopefully this uh, new information will enable those safer and much enjoyable uh, driving experiences uh, in the future. And I'm very uh, excited, uh, you know, to see what uh, other customer functions will enjoy uh, such new sensing in data. Well, thank you very much, Boaz Milraki, for coming on AI and You. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. That's the end of the interview. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, a Pew Research Center analysis 
said that 19% of American workers are in jobs, quote, highly exposed to AI, which is the sort of circumlocution we've become accustomed to hearing around the impact of AI on jobs. Exposed, in this case, doesn't mean we'll lose their jobs, although it doesn't mean they'll keep them either. It means they'll notice AI, either by using it or by having parts of their tasks replaced by AI, which amounts to almost the same thing. But as we've discussed before, we can't infer directly from that how many people will lose their jobs. While you might say that if AI automates 20% of a job, then a business with five workers performing that job could let go one of them and get the same amount of work done, that calculation ignores second-order effects of AI, for instance, on the whole market, increasing competition, getting companies to do more business, increasing the size of the customer base. We can't generalize over the whole jobs market, and it's very hard even to do studies on micro-segments of it. What's interesting about the Pew study is that it spells out something that I've been saying since my first book when I said that a CEO's job would likely be automated before that of his or her hairdresser. The jobs they reckon to be more exposed and assign higher percentages that contribute to that 19% average are the more white-collar jobs, which tend to be more high-paying, requiring higher education, and performed more by more privileged demographic groups, because they're more focused on information work and sophisticated use of language, which is exactly what the large language models are good at. Whereas jobs that involve physical contact, like the hairdresser or repair workers and so on, are obviously less impacted. Now, Pew said their analysis didn't include the possibility of the use of robots, and recent evidence suggests that industrial robots may reduce both employment and wages, but the advances that would promote those effects in robotics are lagging behind the ones that we're experiencing with generative AI. Next week, my guest will be Babak Palavan, founder of NinjaTech AI, Rethinking how working professionals handle day-to-day tasks with the use of large language models. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.